Would you turn with me, please, to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John? The 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. And uh, in a moment, we'll begin reading with verse 12. I have a man in my Wednesday morning uh, men's Bible study who is in the construction business and who builds uh, very large steel structures and uh, has to hire a number of iron workers. And he was telling me that their main claim to fame is their ability to uh, walk the beams 65 feet up in the air. They carry these uh, large uh, bags of bolts fastened to their belt. And uh, if one man carries one, another wants to carry two. If uh, one man carries two, another wants to carry four. And they spend their evenings in the local pubs bragging about what they've done through the day. That's their main claim to fame. And their, uh, their women wait in line to pick out the most macho of the uh, iron men. That's their claim to fame. That's where their significance comes from. All of which reminds me of a uh, uh, certain beer commercial that I've seen from time to time on television. It seems that uh, that is their is the basis of their significance. Now, the problem with finding your significance with walking the beams is that you can only do that so long. The average uh, age of an iron worker is 25 to 35 years of age. And when you're 35 and you're too old to walk the beams, what do you do then to find meaning and significance in life? There has to be another way. Now, we want to talk about another way. It's an unusual way that our Lord presents to us this morning. And it's found in this uh, in this passage. Let's begin reading with verse 12. John 12, verse 12. The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. As you know, Jesus was in Bethany with his friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And on this particular morning, he he made his way around the edge of the Mount of Olives, down the western slope of the mountain, and uh, approached the city of Jerusalem. And the pilgrims, and you have to notice the significance that John places on the fact that these are the pilgrims, not the residents of Jerusalem, but the people that had come to the feast. Pilgrims poured out of the gates of Jerusalem to meet him chanting the words of a psalm. You'll, you'll uh, note from your Bibles that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. It comes from Psalm 118. The context of that psalm is clearly messianic. It has to do with Israel's king. The stone, the psalm says, that the builders had placed somewhere else has become the head of the corner. The stone is a symbol of the king, Messiah, ultimately. And that stone that had been misplaced becomes the head of the corner. This, he says, is the Lord's doing. This is a miracle. And then uh, this chant follows. Hosanna, which is an anglicized form, just a, uh, a transliteration of the Hebrew word. Hoshia na. Save us, we pray. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, they correctly interpreted that psalm because it did have to do with the, uh, with the King of Israel. The last line, blessed is the King of Israel, is their interpretation 
of the psalm. The psalm ends with the reading, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they recognized that Jesus was coming as the king of Israel, and he was coming to save. That's what he came to do. They were right. But notice what Jesus does. He does a very strange thing. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. We know from the other gospel writers that he sent the disciples out at this point to find this, uh, this little donkey. This is a donkey colt, the foal of a donkey. And he got on the donkey, a little awkward-looking, flop-eared donkey, and rode into the city of Jerusalem with his feet dragging the ground all the while. Now, kings in those days rode on, on, on war horses, stallions or mules. The king of Israel rode into Jerusalem on a, on a little donkey colt. Now, believe me, there's nothing dignified about a donkey. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, my father took it into his head to buy for his grandson, my nephew, a little donkey. And uh, for some reason or other, he didn't want to put him in the trailer. We had a horse trailer. He, uh, he felt the little animal was too small, and so he talked me into putting it in the back seat of my car <laughs> and taking it to Tulsa. Now, this sounds like a big yarn, but it really happened. Carolyn will verify this. We took the seat out of my 1948 Mercury convertible and put a plywood floor in the back seat and hauled that little donkey all the way from Dallas, Texas to Tulsa, Oklahoma. My brother-in-law was the uh, southeast director of Young Life headquartered in Tulsa, and that's where he lived, and that's where David Wickern, my nephew, my father's grandson, lived. Now, you can't imagine what it's like to haul a donkey in the back seat of a car unless you've done it. Here is my metallic maroon mercury convertible with skirts and mellow pipes. And this little donkey sat up in the back seat and looked out of the window just like a human being. It actually happened. And we would pull into filling stations and people, people would literally fall down on the ground laughing. When we got to Tulsa, uh, David took one look at the little animal on Christmas morning and wailed, but I wanted a horse. <laughs> and we had to put that little donkey back in the car and take him all the way back to, to Dallas. Henceforth, the donkey was named Tulsa and lived with us until his demise some years later. Uh, there's something very uncool about riding with a donkey. <laughs> and there's something very undignified about riding on a donkey. You see what Jesus was doing? They were thinking of, of Jesus as a conquering hero, someone who would, uh, who would help, them, help rid them of the, of the Roman Empire, who would lead them in revolt, in revolution. Uh, but he didn't come in on a war horse. He came in on his little donkey. Now, as John notes, all of this was done, uh, excuse me, because it was predicted, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. And John was thinking of, a, uh, of an Old Testament 
passage. He didn't understand at the time. I, th- I think the disciples were just as embarrassed as I uh, with that donkey in the back seat. They didn't understand. But later, with, the, with, with a, a historical perspective and with the presence of the Holy Spirit, they understood. They realized that he was fulfilling a prediction in Zechariah. Now, if you will, turn with me to the ninth chapter of Zechariah. Uh, it might be a little hard to find. Zechariah is um, almost at the end of the Old Testament. It's the next to the last book in the Old Testament. If you find Matthew, go back one more book to Malachi, and Zechariah will be the book that precedes it. Chapter 9. Th- this is a fascinating chapter. The- Zechariah wrote in the 5th century B.C. This particular chapter, as far as we know, is written about 480 B.C. He predicts, from that standpoint in history, the coming of Alexander the Great. Alexander didn't even show up till about 150 years later to begin his Western conquest. But Zechariah predicts the coming of, of Alexander, this great world conqueror, the man who, who literally had no, no worlds left to conquer when he was 32 years of age. And uh, the opening chapters describe the line of his march up through Syria. There are several towns that are mentioned, Damascus and Hamath, which are cities in, in Syria, modern-day Syria. And upon Tyre and Sidon, verse 2, last line of verse 2, though they are, they are very skillful, that would be Phoenicia. Tyre was built on a, an island off the coast of uh, Palestine, of Lebanon now. And uh, the Babylonians had tried for several years to capture the city. Couldn't. Alexander the Great came along, built a causeway out to the island, marched out on the causeway, destroyed the city in just a matter of months. The sailors from Tyre sailed around to Ashkelon, which was just down the coast a little ways. And that's why uh, uh, Zechariah predicts that Ashkelon will see it, that is the destruction of Tyre and fear, Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for their hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king. Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod. That's exactly what happened. Alexander deported all the populations of those cities and brought in uh, people from neighboring areas and repopulated the cities. So a mongrel race, as the New American Standard puts it, or foreigners did occupy Ashdod. Those are all cities right along the coast of Palestine. Then uh, the mood changes in verse uh, 7. I will take the blood from their mouth. That is the unclean food. The forbidden food from between their teeth. The food that was offered to idols. Those who are left will belong to our God. Now this is a prediction of the salvation of these folks that live in ancient Philistia. Interesting. Mood shifts almost immediately. Alexander marches in conquest. He takes Syria, he takes Tyre, he takes Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and he says, I'm going to take the blood, the bloody meat out of their mouth, and they're going to be brought in to Israel. Those who are left over will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the folks that lived in Jerusalem that were absorbed into Judah after David, David conquered that city. And I'll defend my house against marauding, uh, marauding forces. And then in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That is the inhabitants of the city of, of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. In other words, he's, 
he has the right stuff. He's the right kind of king. He's right, and he's coming to save. And they, they knew he was talking about Messiah. Gentle and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, a purebred donkey, not a mule. A little donkey. Alexander had a great war horse, a stallion that he called Bucephalus, or ox head. Alexander conquered the ancient world riding on his, his great war stallion. Jesus conquered on his eor, his little donkey. See? See the point he's trying to make? He goes on to explain in verse 10, I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be bo- broken. He'll come gentle. He'll come in humility. He'll come in meekness. There won't be any bloody revolt. There won't be any coups. There won't be any violent overthrow. He, he, he will, he'll rule peacefully, and, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, he'll take in the whole world when he comes. He'll, he'll conquer the world. As for you, Israel, because the blood of my covenant, that is the covenant that was made with Abraham, that promise that Abraham and his seed would bless the whole world. I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, that is to Jerusalem, O prisoners of hope. When Zechariah wrote, most of of Judah was off in Babylon, and he's encouraging the exiles to come back, to come back to, to Jerusalem. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope, those that were prisoners in Babylon. Today I announce that I'll restore twice as much to you. I'll Bend Judah, Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. Ephraim is a word for the northern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim was up in the north. And he says, I'll make weapons out of you. Judah will become my bow. Ephraim will become my arrows. You'll be my sword, my Excalibur, with which I fight. In other words, people will be the instruments of war that, that Jesus uses, or that, that Messiah uses. And listen to this. I'll rouse up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. When Zechariah wrote these words, it was Greece's heyday. This, you know, this was the time of Pericles and, and Aristotle. This is when the great battles of Marathon and Thermopylae and Salamis were being fought. This is just before Alexander and, and his father, Philip of Macedonia, came on, on the scene. This, is, this was Greece's finest hour in Israel, just this tiny little downtrodden nation. And Zechariah says, the day is coming. The Messiah is going to use you as his weapons to conquer the Greeks. But it won't be through bloody warfare. Because your Messiah won't come on a war horse. He'll come on a donkey. Now, I, I, I'm convinced the reason Jesus did what he did, and let's, let's turn back now to John 12 with the Zechariah 9 in the back of our mind. The reason he did this is because he wanted to make a point. The point he wanted to make is simply that his conquest was going to be a peaceful conquest. Now, let me explain. I'm not a pacifist. I, I think there are times that we have to take up arms to defend ourselves as a nation against oppression. I'm not a pacifist. But in terms of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, and the way by which... The world is going to be one for Christ. It's not going to be done through bloody conflict. Jesus makes that very, very clear. See, that the Jews were thinking that now that Messiah was here, 
uh, he he would he would lead a, a revolution that would set them free from the Roman Empire. And that wasn't his purpose for coming. They were totally wrong. They didn't understand. They came out shouting, save us now. And they were thinking of a military solution. And Jesus gets on his little donkey, the point of which is there's another way to save. It's the way of the donkey, you see. And you have to understand that. They didn't understand it, and neither did the disciples. And that's why the other gospel writers say that at this point, as he, as he neared Jerusalem, and the people were were cast, you know, they were they were throwing palm trees on the on the ground, and they were shouting, "Hosanna, King of Israel, save us!" That Jesus wept. He got off of his little donkey and he broke into tears. He began to weep. And Luke tells us the story in Luke nineteen. He says, "Oh, that you just just knew today the things that make for peace." But you would not. He said, oh, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not. You wouldn't come. You won't come on those terms, you see. And then in his mind's eye, he sees Jerusalem besieged by an army. And the little children inside starving. And the city totally destroyed. He says, not one stone left upon another because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. See, they didn't know what they had. They had the Savior, and they didn't see him for what he was. They didn't understand the the way of the donkey. Now, uh, I want you to notice what happens. The crowd that was with him, according to verse 17, had continued to spread the word that he had called Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead. There's a, a sort of a delayed footnote here to explain why the people came out of the city. Some people had been with him who had seen him call Lazarus from the tomb. They had spread the word in Jerusalem, and that's why the people came out shouting, Hosanna. They recognized him as the Messiah, but the wrong kind of Messiah. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone out to him. And there's a a wonderful irony in those words, because that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to save the world. As the passage goes on to tell us. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. These would be uh, Greeks who were God-fearers. They, weren't, they, hadn't, they hadn't become Jews. They hadn't accepted Judaism wholesale. But they were God-fearing Greeks who recognized that there was truth in Judaism. There are some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Now, I don't know why they came to Philip. Philip is a Greek name. And uh, he came from Bethsaida, which was an area of Palestine that was, that was somewhat Hellenized. They had picked up a lot of Greek thought. And perhaps uh, these Greeks recognized in Philip a kindred, kindred spirit. I, I don't know why they went to him, but they came to him and asked for an audience with Jesus. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. They didn't know what to do with these Greeks. This was sort of a hot potato. These were Gentiles coming to Jesus. And they didn't quite know how to handle this situation. So they they go to Jesus and they said, "Uh, Sir, there are some Greeks here who want to see you. And Jesus says to them, The hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. 
Now, if you recall, on, on a number of occasions in the Gospel of John, Jesus has said that this isn't the time. The hour has not come. His mother tried to force him into uh, doing something uh, to manifest himself as Messiah. It was sort of a gentle push. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. A bit later, his brother said to him in chapter 7, why don't you go down to Jerusalem and tell them who you are? And they didn't believe him. They, they, were, they just wanted to give him a little, just tease him a little bit. Jesus said, it's not, it's not my hour. It's not the time. Later in chapter 8, he says the same thing. Now he says, my hour has come. This is it. This is what I came to do. This is my finest hour. This is the hour that, I, that I'm to be glorified. Now, what was it that triggered it? Well, it was this fact that the Greeks were coming to Jesus. The whole world was coming to him to be saved. That's what he came to do. He came to save the world. John's theme, as you know, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was God's purpose initially to raise up one nation, the Jews, through which he would reach the world. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They, they failed in their mission. They, they, instead of, of being missionaries, they, they embraced the truth themselves and were characterized by a kind of exclusivism that excluded the Gentiles out. And Jesus came to make it clear again that the purpose of raising up his people was, was, to, was to make them a light to the Gentiles. He wanted to reach the world. He had to die in order to reach them. Now, he says, is my finest hour. This is the hour for which I came. The time has come. Now, he says either to the disciples or to the Greeks. I'm not sure which. It may be merely to uh, Philip and Andrew that these, these words were uttered. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Uh, he's using a metaphor from our world, from the world of nature. We, we know how that works. You, you take a little seed and you put it in the ground and it gets brown and soft and dies and out of it new life comes. First uh, just a green stalk and then a plant and then, then a flower and then the fruit. Unless you put the kernel of wheat in the ground... There's no productivity. It remains alone. I've still got a little bag of wildflowers that I bought last spring that I thought I'd plant in our backyard. A spot there is kind of a bare spot. I thought that'd be a nice place to plant some wildflowers, and I never got around to planting them. And so the little pack of seeds is still sitting on our refrigerator. It abides alone. Each little seed intact, it, it, that little packet of seeds hasn't done the, the work for which it was purchased. That's the, that's the illusion that he's making here. You have to put seed in the ground before it does any good. Then he applies that metaphor. The man who loses his, li who loses his life, pardon me, the man who loves his life will lose it. While the man who hates his life, that is, puts it to death, in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, the man is the seed. Putting it into the ground is putting it to death. It, he, he, he draws a principle from this metaphor. 
Seeds are of no value unless they're put in the ground. A life is of no value unless it's put in the ground. Unless it dies, it will abide alone. Now, he's thinking first and foremost of himself. You have to understand that. He had to die before there would be any fruit. Before the world could be brought in, our Lord had to be put in the ground. But he was willing to go to the cross and to die. And because he did, there has been a world of, of harvest. It wasn't too long after this that Philip went down to uh, the city of Azotus and preached the gospel. And many believed. Azotus is ancient Ashdod. As a matter of fact, Azotus is the Roman name for the city of Ashdod, which Zechariah predicted would be brought in. This is after Jesus was glorified, you see. Much fruit. Paul went to the Romans and to the Greeks. Much fruit. Mark went to North Africa. Much fruit. Thomas went to India. Much fruit. Uh, Mr. Whitman came to Idaho. Much, much fruit. Wherever the gospel has gone and proclaimed, there's been, there's been much fruit. Steve Newman went to Singapore. Um, Larry and Claudia Glover went to the Dominican Republic. Claude Levitt went to Suriname. Uh, Dan and Monica Brown went somewhere. We can't tell you. And there's much fruit, you see. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed today, Philistines, Greeks, Romans... American Indians, East Indians, wherever the gospel has been proclaimed, people have been brought in. Much fruit. Because Jesus was willing to go to the cross. Now the first application is to him, but the second application is to us because Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't merely state the principle. He says in verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. Follow me into death and where I am. My servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Whoever serves me must follow me, he says. In other words, uh, this is a way of life for those of us who would follow him. This is, the way we, this is the way we come into a relationship with Jesus. We have to die. Doesn't do any good to try on your own. Nothing we can do to, to render ourselves acceptable. To God, There's no work that we can perform. It's not a matter of going to church or doing good works or paying a tithe. None of those things do any good. We have to come to the cross and admit that we have to die there on that cross with Jesus. We have to put ourselves to death. And the result is, is fruit. We gain eternal life, you see. Now that cuts right across everything that our society is telling us. Everything you see on uh, all of the commercials on television run counter to that idea. Look out for number one. Take care of yourself, you see. Uh, we, uh, we get to heaven the old-fashioned way. We earn it, see. Or we sing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's what the world keeps telling us. Jesus says you have to come to the cross and die. You have to come and lay your burden at the cross and and. And be willing to accept the death of that cross. A.W. Tozer put it, I thought, in a, in a very powerful way. Tozer is a, uh, a 
very, very interesting thinker. He has a way of putting things, I think, in, in, a, very, uh, in a very pungent way. The cross, he says, is the symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of the human being. The man in Roman times, times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was not going to have his life redirected. He was going to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck swift and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. That evangelism, which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of man, is false to the Bible and cruel to the soul of the hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world and intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our life up to a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die. That's the beginning of the gospel. So that's the way we, that's the way we begin, but that's also the way we go on. Because what Jesus actually says here in verse 26 is that whoever serves me must keep on following me. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. Just as our Lord came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So that's the name of the game for us. We, we just have to keep giving up our life. Yielding our rights. Give, giving in to others. That, that's the way we live our life. We're not hearing much of that today, but that's, that's life with Christ. We don't like that. Dying comes hard. John Fisher says in one of his songs, you want to have wisdom without making mistakes. You want to have money without the work that it takes. You want to be loved, but you don't want the heartaches. You want to be forgiven without taking the blame. You want to eat forbidden fruit without leaving a stain. You want the glory, but you don't want the shame. You want to be a winner without taking a loss. You want to be a disciple without counting the cost. You want to follow Jesus, but you don't want to go to the cross. Everyone wants to get to heaven, Lord. Nobody wants to die. But dying is necessary. We have to die in order to reap a harvest of, of character and, and influence on others. The alternative, according to Jesus, is to be left alone. Like the lady whose epitaph read, Here lie the bones of Nancy Jones. For her life held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No hits, no runs, no errors. Now, let me tell you, old maidism has nothing to do with gender or age or station in life. Worst old maid I ever met was a, was a male graduate student. It has to do with the tendency to protect yourself, an unwillingness to give yourself away. You can be an old maid and, and be a man 25 years of age. And the result is always that you're left alone. You see, that's the horror of this thing. Jesus is telling us truth. If, if you give yourself away in acts of, of loving service to others, you'll find yourself. But if you try to find yourself, you'll lose yourself. That's what he's saying. It's a true principle. 
world's full of people that are trying to find themselves. Right now, the craze, you know, is health, health food, healthful living, aerobics, and all that sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with it, but some people are obsessed by the idea. That's all they think about is taking care of their own bodies. Or it could be your mind. Or it could be protecting your investments or, or whatever. There are men that are trying to protect their manliness by their unwillingness to give in or give up to their wives. They won't let their wives have a say in anything because somehow it threatens their, their male egos. They've got to protect themselves. But they're going to lose it all in the end. That's what Jesus says. You lose it all. If you try to find yourself, if you try to protect yourself, you lose yourself. But if you lose yourself, you give yourself up to others. You serve and give and and you're careless of, of your own needs. You don't think about your friend, but you think about who you can befriend. You don't complain that people aren't taking an interest in you. You take an interest in them. You don't get angry because no one's taking care of your children. You look for someone else's children to look for, to, to care for. And it's people like that that find themselves in the end. That's what Jesus said, not me. That's what he said. If you want to find yourself, lose yourself. Fling your life away. You want to lose yourself, try to protect yourself. Uh, I have a, a friend who writes occasionally for uh, mission magazines, and I picked up an article uh, just a few weeks ago by this uh, gentleman. I'd like to read it to you. It's a rather lengthy account of a, a young woman who was a missionary and a before a certain organization in Africa. It's not an easy job, he says, to be single in our churches. Women in particular, when they reach a certain age, become objects of pity. But once uh, women arrive overseas, no pity is wasted on them. They're given tough work to do. Arlene, for instance, came to Kenya as a poor candidate for adventure. She was very particular that things be done just so. She easily dissolved into tears, especially at a word of criticism. Yet she could be critical and perfectionistic with others. No one who knew her would have chosen to send her to the Turkana region, but the denomination did. Turkana is a desolate sort of hell where people die on your doorstep of starvation, knife wounds, and crocodile bites. No doctor lives within a practical distance, so the few nurses there practice everything short of heart surgery. The heat, the isolation, the scorpions, the midnight knocks on your door, surely not the atmosphere for Arlene. She went for two months without piped water. When she got it, she noticed a foul taste after a month and discovered one dead disintegrating lizard and one similarly conditioned bat in the water tank. No transfer was available. Someone had to be there, and qualified nurses were in short supply, so she stuck it out. A transformation took place. She gained confidence. Tears diminished. Tensions with other staff, often high in such conditions, lessened. She adapted to working in an environment where perfectionism is, is absurd. And what resulted was a fine drive to get work done, but with less nitpicking. I've done things I never thought I could do and, and that others didn't think I could do, she told me. I didn't always like it. Some aspects I hate, but now I doubt I would want to work in a tamer environment. You see, that's what happens when people fling their lives away. They find themselves. They grow they become what they want to be. It's the only way to find satisfaction in life. If you want to lose yourself, 
Jesus said, try to find yourself. If you want to find yourself, lose yourself. Unless the grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it abides alone, unspeakably alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. It was true of our Lord, and it's true of us. Let's pray. Father, we do love our life. We have a tendency to cling to it and protect it. We ask that you'd rid us of that tendency. Help us to lose ourselves for your sake. Help us to open our eyes to the needs around us, the people that need to be encouraged and helped and prayed with and given to. And We just need to be open-handed and open-hearted with the people that we come across. Teach us this principle that we'll never find ourselves until we do lose ourselves for your sake. We thank you for teaching us this principle. It's in our heads, Lord. We want it to be a part of our, of our life. We want it to be in our heart. And we ask that you'd put it there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.